What's up? What's up? This is Zach Boschman checking in. You're locked into the Citizen Truth podcast. We are so excited to have Vijay Prashad on the podcast today. His latest book is Washington Bullets. Make sure you go pick it up. Um, Vijay, let's get right into it. Why tackle American imperialism? What drove you to invest the time into writing Washington Bullets? Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to talk about this subject because it, you know, as you know, Zach, nobody talks about it. Um, I was driven to do this particular project because in October and November of last, well, not last year anymore, of 2019, um, there was a coup d'etat against the government of Evo Morales Aima of Bolivia. And, you know, liberal commentators in Canada, in the United States, in the United Kingdom and so on, just sort of assumed that, you know, he's got to go and, and there was a fraud and he just has to go. And he's been there too long. That was the other thing I heard. He's been there too long, 14 years. By the way, Zach, um, Angela Merkel has been the chancellor of Germany longer than Evo Morales was the president of Bolivia. And yet, Let's just kick this indigenous guy out of the door. You know, let's just get there was a racist attitude towards it. And also there was a lack of understanding of the let's call it what it is, the cliches of regime change. You know, every aspect of the coup against Evo Morales mimicked earlier coups. And I've been around enough CIA people, particularly retired people to know that, you know, they know what they're doing, Zach. They're not amateurs. Um, they know what they're up to. And I'm not saying this was a CIA coup because the CIA has been, in a way, put aside. Um, there are other intelligence agencies at the front now, military intelligence, you know, the Defense Intelligence Agency, National Security Agency, and so on. But the old Langley fellows still have, you know, one or two tricks up their sleeve. And I wanted to just come out there and say, look, it's a hundred and some pages. Here's the story of what the CIA does. Let me just put it to you as if you're it's CIA school and you're coming in to learn. This is the manual. This is what we do. And guess what? This is what they did in Bolivia. So that was really what impelled me to sit down, spend you know a month and just go nuts. You know, literally, this is a book that I just wrote in a feverish dream. If I could tell you frankly, and if this was the 19th century, I'd have taken laudanum, the old name for opium, stayed up all night, written it through. If I was still in college, it would be crystal meth. Because I'm now, you know, getting older, I basically wrote it out of, you know, cigarettes, booze, and a lot of anger. So I have, a, I have another question around your research process for this book. You know, I feel like when you talk about this covert warfare, a lot of times, you know, people uh, will label you as a, a conspiracy theorist. Um, what was this this research process like? It's not difficult to research the CIA. One of the good things about the United States is that there is a public documents law. You know, there is the Freedom of Information Act, the National Security Archive, which actually is, is a poorly named uh, organization. It's a, it's, a, it's a nonprofit organization in Washington, DC. They, for years, have asked of the federal government, the various agencies, through the Freedom of Information Act, the FOIA requests, They've got a lot of information. You can go to their website. You can read it. The CIA itself has a digital library. You can go and read old CIA documents. In fact, 
the Guatemala coup, which is what I spend a lot of time on, the coup in 1953 against Arbenz, most of the CIA material, including cables and so on, are, are publicly available in the CIA library, which is a digital library. So there's all that, you know. Then there's an enormous amount of secondary material already available. Lots of good scholars, many of them based in the United States, have written terrific books. Greg Grandin, for instance, a scholar in New York City. You know, I think he may have moved to Yale University. Greg Grandin wrote an incredibly useful book about Guatemala, you know, uh, the early period. So there's a lot of that. And then I've been a journalist for long enough, you know, running into people from various intelligence agencies because there is something about being a foreign correspondent and the intelligence services. You know, you sort of cross paths at bars, you cross paths in mysterious coffee shops and so <laughs> on. And I've gotten to know people pretty well. I started to work on a book, Zach, many years ago, which I wasn't able to finish in, and for many reasons. Um, the book is about the assassination of Adolf Dubbs. The U.S. ambassador who was murdered in Kabul, Afghanistan, in early 1979. See, what puzzled me was why was Dubs killed? Because the government said he was killed by these Maoist Shiites, which is an improbable kind of argument. You know, um, Dubs was sent by the Carter administration. He was a liberal man, Soviet expert. He was sent to go and, and represent the United States when the communists had come to power in August of 1978. He took the view that the communist government in Afghanistan should not be undermined because they're not a proxy of the USSR. It's a nationalist government. They have a rational, civilized agenda, you know, women's rights and so on. But Dubs was over, overruled by uh, Mr. Brzezinski, who argued that, no, no, we should support the right-wing fascistic Mujahideen in order to raise the price and bring the Soviets into Afghanistan. And then Dubs dies. So I've always had my suspicions about the death of Dubs. Look, I'm not alleging anything, Zach. I just was interested. You know, why was the US ambassador killed? Nobody cares about it. There's no real official explanation. So I've been calling up material, meeting people. And over the years, intelligence, senior intelligence people have asked to talk to me. And one of them became very friendly with me, Chuck Kogan, who was the head of, he was the director of operations for the Mideast region. Met him several times in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He wore a big overcoat. I thought he was packing heat, even though he was an <laughs> old man. You know, and, and Chuck looked me right in the eye and said, don't pursue this story. It's not healthy for you. And I thought, man, you know, you're retired. You're in your 80s and you're threatening me. You know, that's that's hilarious. <laughs> you know, that's hilarious. Like, what are you going to do, Chuck? But I met a guy from British intelligence in the UK and he told me the same thing. He said, this is not a story you should follow. And I thought, wow, that's really fascinating, guys. I mean, you know that I'm not like a Kennedy assassination guy or a 9-11 truth guy. I'm not that kind of guy. You know, I, I'm a, I try to get the story as the story comes to me. I don't have to, you know, join dots which don't exist. OK, I'm not besmirching anybody's reputation, but that's not who I am. And so yet they said, don't go there. Don't touch that story. So over the years, I've met these kind of people. And when I was doing this book, I, I was, you know, I it was signal messages and telegram messages. Is this, can you actually, did you guys actually do this in Guyana? And the guy says, well, of course, you know, it's there in, in the British Foreign Office papers, which are again, digitally available. So there is nothing here that's me, you know, saying I've reached here, you know, in the pond, and then I'm going to throw my own rock in as the next stepping stone. No, the, the stepping stones were there. I just walked across the pond.
Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I didn't learn about, you know, any of these, this American in interference in foreign democracies at all, you know, in my schooling growing up in the U.S. Um, my first exposure to it was when I went to Chile after college and um, I went to the Human Rights Museum and learned about the overthrow of Allende and the subsequent Pinochet dictatorship. So, you know, for people that just totally new to the subject matter here, where are some places that the U.S. has interfered uh, in democracy, maybe through the CIA, like since World War II? Well, the most dramatic stories, Zach, are not in the global south, in the third world. The most dramatic story is in Europe, because in Europe, in France, in Italy, in the various countries of the Balkan regions, you know, Yugoslavia, Albania, in fact, Greece, um, in these countries, right after World War II, the right wing was totally delegitimized because in all these countries, the right wing collaborated with the Nazis. Let me tell, say this again. The right wing in France, Italy, of course, Germany collaborated with the Nazis. You know, that's their political disposition. So who was fighting against the Nazis? It was the communist left, you know, the partisans in, in Greece, the partisans in Yugoslavia, the partisans, the song Bella Ciao, which was sung during the pandemic in Italy, that is a communist partisan song. That's not just a beautiful song that, you know, sounds great in Italian. That's a communist song. They were on the threshold of winning elections in all these countries and would have won the election by quite a margin in some of them. And what the US government did was the CIA in collaboration with big business interests, because a lot of the money is funneled through private corporations. The CIA basically went to these countries and prevented the elections from happening in a fair and free manner. So the Italian general election after the war, the CIA intervened greatly in that election. Nobody denies it now. You know, it's, a, it's many years ago. Nobody denies it. It's there in the public record. In fact, Zach, here's the most amazing thing. Mainstream liberal historians just have it in the text. You know, this is what happened. The, the CIA came in and interfered in that election. So the Italian people couldn't advance their own goals. In, it, in Greece, the CIA brought pro-Nazis back into office to prevent the left from taking power in Greece. You know, in West Germany, you know, Federal Republic of Germany, um, the Bundesrepublik, um, the CIA, the US government collaborated with known Nazis to create German intelligence, West German intelligence. The guy who headed the West German intelligence agency was a known Nazi intelligence agent. You know, uh -huh. there was no denazification in West Germany. So really, we don't even need to go to the coup in 53 in Iran or 54 in, in Guatemala or what you mentioned, and, and I'm glad you've been to Chile, a beautiful country, 1973, September 11th in Chile. You don't even need to go there, Zach. Let's just mm -hmm. stay inside Europe. Europeans should be outraged that their democrat democratic traditions were so badly, so poorly managed by um, US influence that, you know, reasonable sensible people were just set aside and i mean this has an Im impact for generations to come it's not just one election you know when in the us when they talk about russian interference in elections and you know chinese interference in elections inside me it makes me feel a little ill you know i feel a little ill because i'm like seriously guys you know you're so bent out of shape about american democracy look at what you've done to almost every country in the world again 
I'm not talking about Thailand, you know, where the US has really intervened, managed that country's, uh, you know, monarchy. Essentially, it's a monarchical country. I'm not talking about, um, you know, the coups in Africa, I'm not talking about the death of Lumumba 1961, not talking about the overthrow of Nkrumah 1966, not talking about the assassination of Thomas Sankara 1987, you know, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm talking even about Europe, your own allies, your own allies. I don't know what the record is in Canada, but I wonder sometimes. <laughs> um, so in the middle of the book, you lay out uh, a manual for regime change. Uh, I was hoping we could go through a couple of those points. Um, the first one you have is is lobby public opinion. Uh, how do they do that? Well, now that's really interesting because it's part of an information war. And often, Zach, the public in the public opinion that needs to be lobbied is the is the is the public in the United States and, of course, in the country where you're trying to do the coup. But you really need to lobby your own people as much as you need to lobby elsewhere. And we've seen this in the public record. Now, as I said, at the CIA's digital library, you can read evidence of this where the CIA or people in high places in US government calling the publisher of the New York Times and saying, remove that reporter from Guatemala, remove that report, it's not reliable, maybe a red, we don't want a red covering Guatemala, put in somebody, and in fact, in that case, the CIA sent their own person to report in the New York Times. It's a scandal, I mean, it's ridiculous. So that they could report and say, well, you know, uh, there's communist interference in Guatemala. There was no, com Jacob Arbenz, who was an elected leader in uh, Guatemala, was a social democrat who attempted to do land reforms, land reforms that were going to impact United Fruit Company, whose owners, some of them, were heading the CIA and the U.S. State Department. They had, you know, major shares in United Fruit. So they had actually a personal, pecuniary, financial interest, personal not just for the United States, not for some elite class or anything. They personally benefited from that coup. You know, it's a terrible story. But um, so you've got to have the mainstream newspapers send people. Then there's an information war. You know, information wars are fascinating. You know, you, you suddenly try to portray Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela as a narco trafficker. Now, look, let's be clear. In the United States um, judicial system, in New York City, the brother of President Hernandez, the sitting president of Honduras, President Hernandez, his brother, has been found guilty of narco trafficking in a federal court in New York City. Okay, he is a sitting, and in that indictment and in the finding, they say that the brother, President Hernandez, benefited from drug money. This is in the US legal record, it's not in my head. Secondly, Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA of the United States government has said over the course of the last decade that the current administration in Colombia is infiltrated by narco money. That means the government of current president Ivan Duque benefits from narco trafficking and that over 90% of cocaine that comes into the United States is Colombian cocaine. And yet Trump's attorney general holds a press conference in which he accuses the Venezuelan government of Nicolas Maduro of being the, you know, as it were, the brain trust of the drug trafficking. So there's no evidence for that in the Drug Enforcement Agency materials. Where, 
it beggars belief, right? You'd think, how is this? But no, Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, they just, whatever the government says, they are stenographers, they line up, they, they don't ask the question, excuse me, uh, uh, excuse me, Attorney General Barr, how is it possible that last year's DEA report doesn't have any of the information that you're giving now? And I would also actually like a reporter to go to the Attorney General now under Biden and say, excuse me, last year Barr said this, but the current DEA report also doesn't have any evidence about Venezuela. So could we please clarify that? Nobody does. And see, people like me can't get into those press conferences. They, they just will never credential us because we come from, I come from a, a syndication service called Globetrotter. Um, they're not going to give, even if I get into the room, they're not going to call on me. And because, you know, who am I? I'm a nothing. They'll, they'll call on the Times. They'll call on the Post. They'll call on Fox News. These are the people they call on, and those stenographers never ask the obvious question. Look, Zach, I'm going to say this again. What did I just say that's not searchingly obvious? <laughs> it's you all have public an record. agency, yeah. right? A drug agency. Mm -hmm. They produce material. That material is online. It's in public view. You make a press conference. Shouldn't there be some congruence between their materials and your statement? Something. Okay, you can say, no, there's a secret DEA report. Say that. Tell me there's a secret DEA report. And then I would like to follow up and say, why is it secret? Why is it secret? If you're referring to a secret report and providing evidence from it, release the report. What's Why the secrecy? That's what journalism should be like. So part of this lobby public opinion, Zach, is about an information war. I'm going to say something mildly controversial. Um, currently, there is a drum beating about genocide in Xinjiang in China. Drum beating about it. Um, genocide is a very high standard, you know, very high standard. United States is responsible for the death of a million people, perhaps, in Iraq as a consequence of a war that is illegal. The, the UN General, uh, sorry, the UN Secretary General Kofi Annan called it illegal in 2004. He said it's an illegal war. We think about a million people died. That's a very large number of people. Nobody's saying that the Chinese government has killed a million Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Nobody's saying that. And yet the word genocide is used routinely, forced labor. The United States government still incarcerates the highest number of people per capita than anywhere in the planet. Still, nobody uses the word genocidal for the US government. You know, Black Lives Matter. How many there's like, I don't know what the number is, Zach, seven people shot by the police a day or three people shot. I, I don't even know what the exact stat mm -hmm. is. It's really high. You know, nobody says the U.S. police departments are genocidal. And yet with such glibness, people can say there's genocide in the Xinjiang. Until yesterday, you didn't even know the existence of Xinjiang. And many people may not know Xinjiang is the place and the Uyghurs are an ethnic minority. They might mix the two because you just... But the government sets this Wurlitzer in motion. You know, they, mm -hmm. they put on this tape recorder and it plays music into your ears. And then that's how you lobby public opinion. Because then if there's genocide, let's bomb them. Are you concerned that the U.S. might go to war with China? Very concerned. Um, now, there's many ways to answer your question. One is the United States is already at war with China. Um, it's in an information war. It's in an economic war. It's in a diplomatic war. You know, we at our institute, Tricontinental, we have a concept called hybrid war. We believe that the conventional war or the, you know, the war by bombing, let's say, 
is not the only form of war. There are many ways to really destroy a country. So the United States has been um, in, a, in a war against Venezuela since probably 1998, when Hugo Chavez won an election. It's a war that includes coups. It's a war that tries to suffocate a country economically and so on. That's a war. You know, they're saying the U.S. is withdrawing from Afghanistan and lots of liberal commentators say the longest war the U.S. has been in. That's not true. There are two longer wars. The, the, the longest wars that the U.S. continues to prosecute, one is against Korea. You know, th that war never ended. The so-called, you know, war in Korea of, of the 1950s, it's still unended. The DMZ, it's a demilitarized zone, not a border. That's a war the U.S. continues to prosecute. And against Cuba. You know, that war starts in 1959. It continues till today. Uh, the United States has never really said, let's have a peace agreement with Cuba. Never. Obama said, let's open a few things, but that's not a peace agreement. They still kept the sanctions in place and so on. So I fear that it could escalate with China because U.S. shipping, what they call freedom of navigation um, missions, enters or skirts Chinese territorial waters and, you know, they provoke a response from China. This is bad for the U.S. Navy. New U.S. Navy should not be in the business of provocation, should not be. It's bad for sailors. You know, sailor can die in that interaction. It's a very risky business. Should not be in the business of provocation. Um, I would like to see one of the liberal uh, Democrats in either the House or the Senate stand up and propose a bill against freedom of navigation. Because that's something that the United Nations should do. The U.S. should not be doing that in the Persian Gulf because it gets into these clashes with Iranian ships. It should not be doing that in China. Imagine if there was a Russian or Chinese ship doing freedom of navigation runs along the U.S. coastline. It would piss people off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had to go down that uh, China tangent because I think it's really important. Um, I want to go back to another point of your manual for regime change. You kind of touched on this tangentially. Uh, make the economy scream. You know, how, how does that work? Well, that's a that's a direct quote from part of the transcript of conversation between Henry Kissinger, who was then essentially the principal advisor to Richard Nixon with President Nixon. They were sitting in the White House. Um, they were very worried because Salvador Allende, uh, led a popular unity government to victory in the election in 69 and in 70 comes to office. Even before Allende took the oath of office to enter the Moneda Palace, even before then, and I hope, by the way, when you were in Chile, you visited Moneda and that mm -hmm. side door where, where you know, this is, it's a very important door in the center of the coup. This Allende is in there. It's a, it is a terrible day, the 11th of September, 73. But before that, you know, they tried to egg the military onto doing an action. A general refused. He was assassinated. It's, it's a forgotten story. I, I tell this story about how a constitutionalist general had to be killed to prevent him blocking what would eventually be the coup. But nonetheless, very important U.S. business interests were at stake in Chile. Two particular that I want to talk about. One is telecommunications giant by the name of ITT. And secondly, copper companies, including Anaconda Copper. They did not want nationalization. They did not want even more regulation. You know, they, were, they had a free hand in the previous era in Chile. So from the beginning, when INDE moved a pretty, you know, mild agenda, similar to Jacob Arbenz in Guatemala. He moved a mild agenda against the interests 
of these U.S. multinational corporations, um, the United States tried to block everything they did economically. Then Nixon says, we're going to make the economy scream. What did they do? Simple things. You see, in international trade, if you and I are trading, um, and I say to you, listen, Zach, you know, we're going to uh, trade in pencils. In other words, I'll buy, you know, wheat from you and I'll pay you in pencils. And then you hoard the pencils and you give me pencils when you need something. This is fine. If you and I trade and we have no um, uh, surplus, no deficit, you know, if at the end of the year, basically the pencils are equal, then there's no problem. But if I'm holding a hell of a lot of pencils and, you know, continuing to sell you things and keep pencils, I have a problem if nobody else will accept pencils. You know, I have a serious problem, which is why you end up with an instrument or some kind of currency that pe other people trust. And that happens to be because of a whole host of reasons, the US dollar. So the US dollar is the medium of international exchange or reconciling trade around the world. If you prevent a country from getting access to dollars, they have a hard time trading and it's expensive to buy dollars in the international market. And that's precisely what they did to Chile. They made it really difficult for Chile to trade because they closed down two things, credit lines. So the Chilean government couldn't borrow money. They prevented them access to dollars. Same thing they're doing to Venezuela today, by the way, mm -hmm. same thing. And then the major companies basically said, we're going to stop you know, buying copper from there. We'll take a short term hit for a long term gain. We'll we'll take a short term hit, meaning we'll we won't be getting copper there. We'll source it elsewhere. Prices of copper may rise. We'll take a hit, but we want that government to fall for the long term gain. That's what happened to Chile. They really squeezed the INDA government. They isolated it economically. They made the economy scream. You get inflation inside the country, less goods available. Some, you know, the currency inside is the same. People are bidding up prices of goods. So the goods prices go up. That's inflation. People have discontent. There are queues and so on. This is another way to lobby public opinion, actually, because you create distress in the country artificially. It's artificial distress. Mm -hmm. People are upset and then you can say, let's do a coup. And then middle classes will support the coup, you see. So it's actually, if you're the United States, it's quite easy to create economic distress. It's interesting. Trump tried to do this in China. You can't. You can't do this to China because China is economically too powerful. And plus, there's 1.4 billion people, enormous territory. They have an internal market. They have enough goods and services they produce. Their vulnerability is energy, which is why the United States conducts freedom of navigation in the Straits of Malacca, you know, where Singapore is. The Chinese vulnerable that at any point if the U.S. closes the Straits of Malacca, they can't access oil, which is why a lot of this belt and road activity, building ports in Pakistan, opening is important because it's a different way to get energy in. And the closeness now of China and Russia, um, you know, pipelines bringing Russian energy into China has meant that the Chinese have overcome that barrier. They actually have overcome it can't make the Chinese economy scream, Zach. And, you know, they're breathing a sigh of relief in, in China. But for the United States, it's narrowed the options a lot. Wow. Uh, make sure you uh, go out and pick up the book, Washington Bullets. You can see uh, some of these other points in the manual for regime change. Vijay, thank you so much for writing the book and thank you for joining us today. Make sure you go check out his articles on uh, citizentruth.org. Appreciate it. Hey, listen, it's a pleasure. And thanks for the work you do.
Uh, thank you so much. You too. Zach Boschman here, co-owner of CitizenTruth.org. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Citizen Truth Podcast. The intro and outro song is Enthusiast by Tours and is provided via the Creative Commons license. Please subscribe and check us out at CitizenTruth.org.